It's Monday, March 13th, 2023, and this is Markets Daily from Coindesk. I'm Adam B. Levine, here again with Adrian Bluss for your Daily News Roundup. On today's show, we're talking about the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and what it means. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Bitcoin, Ether, and most other top tokens are trading up significantly, and markets showing almost universally green. And although on this show we've long predicted it, we take no joy in the events of the weekend, which saw the U.S. central bank finally break something of significant enough size within the U.S. economy, thanks to the last few years of haphazard monetary policy flailings. On today's show, we'll dig into this story deeply and help you contextualize what you may or may not have been glued to over the weekend. First, here's a brief timeline. Last week, fears voiced by a number of pillars within the venture capital and startup community became a rush to the exits at the vaunted Silicon Valley Bank, which was put into federal receivership and liquidation by the Federal Deposit and Insurance Corporation late on Friday. The FDIC guarantees up to $250,000 per account, which for most Americans would seem reasonable. But for the tech companies who banked at SVB, in many cases, it wouldn't have been enough to even make payroll. We'll dig into this a bit more shortly. For more than $170 billion of deposits held at the bank, not much of it, and well below the industry average, was actually protected by FDIC insurance. That had concerns running at an all-time high around forced furloughs if companies couldn't access their funds to meet payroll, especially for California companies, which have more restrictions in this regard. Prominent voices began calling for a full backstop of all depositors in the U.S. banking system, where the U.S. government would essentially guarantee all balances on behalf of taxpayers, even in the event of more bank failures. On Sunday morning, things got worse as images of customers lining up outside of First Republic Bank led U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen to speak in an attempt to restore confidence, saying that they believe the changes made after prior crises would prevent the need for any further accommodations. But that didn't last long. Just hours later, the FDIC, the Federal Reserve, and Treasury Department issued a joint statement announcing that they would not only guarantee all depositors of Silicon Valley Bank, but would also be closing Signature Bank, an important bank in the world of crypto, and guaranteeing all of its deposits as well. Prominent U.S.-regulated stablecoin USDC was one of the most immediate winners, as the more than $3 billion of collateral they had acknowledged were held at SVB were now no longer in flux, and the system was once again seen as fully collateralized. This accomplished two things. First, it shuttered the very last crypto-friendly bank. And secondly, it provided an implicit guarantee across the banking system without needing to say it. If they were willing to rescue both of these banks, the thinking goes, they would rescue anything. This morning, crypto markets are soaring even as banking stocks in particular are waiting for the next shoe to fall. And there's the question of why did Silicon Valley Bank fail? We've got a lot to discuss this morning, so let's get into it. In this next bit, we'll talk about why the bank failed, what would have likely happened if the Fed hadn't swung into rescue, and what this means for monetary policy moving forward. In episodes to come later this week, we'll surely cover more facets of this, not least of which is that stablecoin dynamic, which is quite interesting. But for now, let's just focus on the basics. First, why was the bank teetering on the edge of failure? There are two key moments that seem to be the culprits. There's the utterly staggering pace of interest rate increases, which the Fed has overseen over the last year. And then there's the lack of hedging. Silicon Valley Bank is, like most banks, a fractional reserve entity. That means that they don't tend to charge you fees for holding your money because they are, in fact, investing that money to make a profit for the bank, knowing that at any given time, only a small percentage of total deposits will be requested back by their depositors, at least under normal circumstances. A so-called run on the bank is when depositors get scared that when they try to access their deposits, 
the bank won't have any liquid capital available to pay them, which, if not stopped, can quickly catalyze a collapse, as we've seen here. It's important to note that bank runs do not actually cause a bank to become insolvent, but they can force a bank to acknowledge that they're unable to meet short-term demands for withdrawals, which is essentially the same thing for our purposes. Once you get to that point, the bank is closed to liquidate what assets it has for all customers, rather than letting the customers who are first to withdraw get their full balances back, while those who did not are left with the dregs. In the case of Silicon Valley Bank, more than half of their depositors' capital was tied up in treasury bonds, that is, U.S. government debt, and mortgage-backed securities. These are typically rather boring, lower-yielding so-called safe investment options that turned out to be not so safe over the last year, again thanks to the U.S. Central Bank. Monetary policy is like a cruise ship. It's big and slow and unwieldy, and if you swing the wheel too far too fast, you're gonna have a bad time. That's essentially the lesson here. Changing things too rapidly, especially after holding them in an unsustainable position for far too long, means there isn't enough time for long-term planning to be adjusted and executed on. Prior to our current experience of rapidly rising core interest rates, up 1,600% just last year, which is a blistering pace not even seen at the peak of inflation in the 1980s, the U.S. Central Bank, along with the bipartisan political system, held interest rates near zero for years, with claims it would leave them there as long as it takes. That, of course, goosed risk markets, who could no longer get a return through traditional instruments like government debt, pushing up asset prices and convincing many parties that they should take the U.S. Central Bank at its word, rather than fighting the Fed, as it's called. During this time, it wasn't just government debt that was held at artificially low rates. It was also mortgage-backed securities, which the U.S. Central Bank was buying a staggering $50 billion of per month. Both of these interventions were adding more demand to treasuries and mortgage-backed security markets than would otherwise have been there, which means that sellers were disadvantaged and had to accept lower prices than they would have if the Fed, supposedly just an umpire or referee in the world of monetary policy, hadn't been participating in the game itself. One year ago, the core interest rate was just one quarter of one percentage point, and you could get a mortgage for around 3%. Today, the core interest rate is approaching 5%, and mortgage rates have more than doubled, up around 7%. That amount of change in a single year is essentially unprecedented, and creates existential risks for pensions and banks and insurance companies and many other entities who use these instruments to protect their funds and hedge without doing something as risky as betting on the stock market itself, although many do that too. And so it was with Silicon Valley Bank. As a growing number of depositors started pulling their funds, the amount of actual cash at the bank dwindled, and SVB was forced to sell off a $21 billion portfolio of these instruments. Because of how rapidly rates have increased, there was little appetite for government debt or mortgage-backed securities at rates that would have seemed attractive even just nine months ago. It's easy to think about yourself. If you had the choice of buying a government bond that yields 4% in seven years or 1% in 10 years, where at the end of the term you get your principal back, what would you choose? Of course, you'd choose the current, shorter duration one that pays a significantly better rate of return. The fact that debt you buy today is so much more attractive than the debt that they bought nine months ago means these four sales happened only at a loss, which then took what was always true about them, that they were less valuable today than they were when they were purchased during the prior market-supportive monetary policy regime, and crystallized it into a balance sheet reality that left the bank with more liabilities than assets. The imbalance wasn't big, but big enough for the clowns to come in and shut down the circus. Before you think I'm laying blame here exclusively at the feet of monetary policy, understand that I'm not. Executives at Silicon Valley Bank made poor choices. Notably, they did not hedge against the possibility of interest rates rising as rapidly as they did. 
But you can see that the Federal Reserve and friends created the conditions in which this failure to hedge could cause such a staggering collapse. And it's somewhat ironic to note that really what we're saying is that the bank believed the Fed too much. In the weeks and months to follow, I imagine we'll learn a lot more. But for now, that's where we are. Okay, next let's talk about what would have happened if a rescue had not been forthcoming. Yes, the bank would have failed, but it's the second order effects that are a lot more interesting to me. Even on Friday, there was a scramble in corporate circles with companies suddenly very concerned about the solvency of their own banks. While Silicon Valley Bank was unique in many ways, the particular problem that brought about its demise was not. Most banks can actually only return just a fraction of customer deposits to those customers on a short-term basis because the funds are quite literally invested and can't be accessed without selling the investment. So the question wasn't so much, do you bank with SVB, as it was, are you in a too-big-to-fail bank? Bailing out a bank is a costly thing from a political perspective. While the depositors will love you for it, socializing the cost of bad decisions made at a bank became particularly toxic after the Occupy Wall Street protests and subsequent congressional reforms made clear and stated explicitly that this was not something that could be repeated. And yet, there is still an implicit belief within many investors, including myself, that despite claims to the contrary, the U.S. government, or at least its banking regulators, view the biggest, oldest New York banks, including J.P. Morgan Chase and Goldman Sachs, as systemically important, or as they were referred to at the time, too big to fail. In a world of banking solvency risk, then, where would you rather have your money? At a medium-sized regional bank that isn't considered important enough to rescue if things go bad? or one of the big, old New York banks that is? The answer is obvious. You're going to pull all your funds from the regional bank and deposit it at the one that'll be rescued if all things go wrong. That concern amplified dramatically over the weekend, and ironically would have both hurt those smaller banks while making these so-called too-big-to-fails into even more systemically important and an even bigger concentration of risk. Letting the banks fail but guaranteeing deposits was seemingly the least worst option given all the moving parts, at least in the big picture. And speaking of the big picture, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank means that, at least for the moment, odds are very good that Jerome Powell's latest period of hawkish monetary policy is over. As we've just discussed, the central bank's hard right on interest rates was a catalyst for the collapse. And it sort of doesn't matter how strong the jobs market is if you're incidentally knocking over banks. How long will this last? That's anyone's guess, but I expect we're in for one hell of a month. As I said, there's a lot more to this story, and we will be digging more deeply into it over the course of the week, but this is enough to get us started. Today's update is wholly my coverage and my opinion. Bitcoin is currently trading at $22,420. That's up 12.6% since our show on Friday, while Ether is trading at $1,604 per token. That's up more than 14% in the same time period, according to the Coindesk Market Index. And speaking of the Coindesk Market Index, we're looking at an absolute reading this morning of 1,036. That compares against Friday's reading of 941 and represents a better than 10% gain across top traded tokens. And stay tuned for after the break when Adam and I will unpack the recent collapses and what to expect next. Back in a minute. Join Coindesk's Consensus 2023, the most important conversation in crypto and Web3, happening April 26th through 28th in Austin, Texas. Consensus is the industry's only event bringing together all sides of crypto, Web3, and the metaverse. Immerse yourself in all that blockchain technology has to offer creators, builders, founders, brand leaders, entrepreneurs, and more. Use code MARKETSDAILY to get 15% off your pass. 
visit consensus.coindesk.com or check the link in the show notes. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome back. Today we're trying something a bit different. I'm joining Adam B. Levine for a brief Q&A. So much happened so fast over the weekend that I thought we'd catch up and ask him some questions. So let's get him on. Good morning, Adam. Good morning, Adrian. A lot has changed over the weekend. I have some questions. Well, to start, we saw Silvergate collapse, then we saw Silicon Valley Bank collapse just before the weekend, and then over the weekend, we saw Signature Bank collapse. So how did Silvergate's collapse differ from Silicon Valley Bank's? The big difference seems to be the concerns around systemic contagion. And not just systemic contagion as far as other banks are concerned, but systemic contagion as far as employers and startups are concerned. A lot of venture capitalists out there uh, were really kind of like, you know, shaking the bushes and telling people, hey, you need to get your money out of this bank. And there were a lot of concerns that after the bank closed, effectively what the FDIC typically will do is this. They'll go in, they'll shut a bank down on Friday, and then they'll open it up on Monday for people to be able to access up to $250,000 of the money that they had in that bank. And so that up to $250,000, that's an arbitrary number, but it's what the FDIC will insure. So when you go to open a bank account, they say you're insured up to X amount. Mm -hmm. The problem in this case is that a lot of balances at uh, Silicon Valley Bank uh, were far, far in excess of that. And so you have a company like Roku who was insured for $250,000, but had almost half a billion dollars worth of capital actually in that bank. And so this is kind of what caused the problem. It wasn't so much that it had anything to do with the crypto space or not. It was more just that there was a growing narrative that really of two things. One, that if this collapse happened, it would lead to mass layoffs uh, within the tech sector beyond what we've already seen that wouldn't be about the business itself, but would be about access to capital so that they could pay for ongoing payroll. Right. That was real. And that's that that's real. significant. Yeah. Um, on the other side of it, there were concerns that if you didn't have some type of backstop against the entire banking system, then you would see basically anybody who had money at a bank that wasn't like one of the big, uh, too big to fail banks. Uh, so, you know, the JP Morgans, the Goldman Sachs, kind of the, the big old Wall Street banks that are so interconnected with the financial and political system that you would see everyone pulling their money out of their local banks or of whatever bank they were at and putting it into these big institutions. And that's because even though we went through the global financial crisis, there were all of these things that we did 
that we're you know, supposed to make it so we never have to backstop these banks again. The reality of it is, is that if the going gets tough, like the financial regulators, like they don't really care about anything other than maintaining stability and to a certain extent their own power. So if you're talking about maintaining stability and you're saying, okay, well, these are the banks that are systemically important, then that implicit, like it, it doesn't even matter what else you say about it. We know you're going to bail out those banks. Mm. And so if there's, here's these four or eight banks over here that we know if the going gets tough, you're going to bail them out. And then over here are all of the other hundreds and thousands of banks. And we know that it would be too politically dangerous and difficult for you to bail them out. So you probably won't. Why would anyone keep money in a bank that wasn't a too big to fail bank, which then has the effect of compounding how systemically important they are, because now they're holding an even greater percentage of the money, which then can potentially cause even bigger systemic disruptions. Because now, well, what happens if, you know, a quarter of the money, you know, held in banks is now held in JP Morgan and JP Morgan did something stupid and needs to be bailed out? Well, that's like they would get bailed out, but it would be an even bigger problem than than kind of we would have had that dynamic happen today. Mm. So th- this is this is the concern. Silvergate had none of these factors around it. It was a very niche bank serving right. a very niche clientele. They also made poor decisions, but there was no concern that because Silvergate wasn't being rescued, that that would then imply that the rest of the banking system was at risk. Now, the banking system to a large part is at risk. They've taken on all these same risks. You know, it's like uh, Biden's uh, proposed uh, tax on unrealized gains. So what what he wants to do there is he says, oh, well, you're very rich. You have all of your money in Tesla stock or something like that. And you've seen gains on that Tesla stock, you know, of 10,000%. But you haven't sold any of that stock. Uh, so therefore, there's no taxable event. So we want to tax you on the unrealized gains. We want to tax you on the gains that you've made, but you haven't actually cemented because you haven't sold them yet. This is basically the opposite of that. All of these banks and all of these insurance companies and all these institutions, by nature of what we were talking about earlier in the show, they have massive unrealized losses as a result of buying instruments when the rates were artificially pushed too low. And so the question is, are they forced to recognize those losses that they've taken? To the extent that they become realized losses, right. then almost every bank out there has this problem to some extent or another. Uh, and especially, I mean, like not not every bank, it's... It's not like that, but it's just to say that that this is kind of an, a normal thing, right? These banks will carry losses during a time like this, and so long as not too many people try to withdraw their money, then they're 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 okay, at least in the eyes of the current system. Yeah, which is what happened with Silicon Valley Bank, who's the old-fashioned bank run, like everyone getting their money out at the same time and then having them to force to liquidate it, the loss. Yeah, I mean it's right. it's a crisis of confidence. Yeah, I mean like again, it's. Fractional reserve banking is is effectively a game of musical chairs, right? It's like, you know, you you pay your money in and then there's X number of chairs and there's Y number of people, right? And these chairs are the money, <laughs> the available money, right? Uh, you know, in fractional reserve banking, it's not at all unusual for uh, for a bank to maintain less than 10% um, of actual cash on hand relative to deposits, relative to how much they have out in kind of investment world. That's That's somewhat typical. So that's the challenge though, is that, if you get to one of those points and everybody's suddenly like, oh, we're playing musical chairs, I guess I better sit right now. <laughs> you know, like that's a that's a kind of panic moment uh, that can catalyze these types of things. And so they, they had to stop it. Uh, but it's like, I like to think about this in two different ways. On the one side, 
it's really important that they did stop this right now because there was a short-term systemic issue. On the other hand, it's really important that we recognize that this problem was caused by monetary policy. And this problem was actually caused by the people who are now supposedly fixing the system. But they're not fixing the system. They're papering over this problem. They're trying to rebuild confidence and they're trying to, to move along before anybody really notices that actually the problem was caused by this you know, haphazard swing the wheel all the way to the left, swing the wheel all the way to the right monetary policy that we've basically had for most of our adult lifetimes, but especially over the course of the last right. five years. Okay, so we have the Federal Reserve attempting to reduce inflation rates by draining liquidity out of the market by increasing interest rates, making taking out loans or borrowing money and getting more money into the system more expensive. Mm -hmm. But the FDIC just bailed out, like we're saying here, Silicon Valley Bank, and that leaves us in a combination of high interest rates and with the government deploying more capital into markets. So my question is, what does this mean if I want to buy a house in Austin? <laughs> <laughs> it's a bad time. Yeah. So in terms of historically, if you look back over the last hundred years, interest rates actually aren't very bad Okay. Um, for like buying a house or something like that. Like 7% is not high. When my parents bought a house, I think their first house in like the early eighties, I think they paid like a 21% interest rate. Wow. Like that's a lot. Now there is a difference, which is that at that point, the actual principal, like the amount of money that you would have to borrow to buy a house, even someplace like California, I think they paid $125,000 or something like that for a house that's now valued at several million. Wow. Right. So the difference isn't so much the interest rate alone, it's the interest rate combined together with what is the price that you have to pay. And that, that yeah, that's the challenge right now is that we're, so, so it's a terrible time to be doing something now in absolute terms, combining those two things together. But just from an interest rate perspective, it's not as bad as it's ever been. It's the combination of the two that makes it particularly terrible. Okay. All right. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. I was waiting for the housing market to cool down, but it seems like now it's just going to remain expensive because of the the bailout, just more money into the system. I think expensive is the wrong word. I think distorted is the right word. The market is just distorted, right? Like effectively what we have is a regime of monetary policy that over the last 20 years has effectively said, anytime the going gets tough, let's just change it. Let's just put our thumb on the scale and just like move it to be the place that we want. The problem with that is that you have to keep your thumb on the scale. Otherwise, if you let your thumb off the scale, then it's going to swing back the other way because you are messing with an equilibrium that exists and would be different were you not doing what you're doing. So that's the that's the trap of all of this honestly is that what we've saw what we saw over the weekend wasn't a monetary policy move it was like five or six monetary policy moves from 25 years ago honestly that have just needed to okay well we did this and then that caused this and then now we need to correct this and then now over here there's something breaking we got to run over there and do this and that's the story of monetary policy it's not that these people are in control it's that they're the clown brigade effectively following around behind, you know, trying to put out fires that they themselves actually set not very long ago. So when you look at these things, that's the challenge is that we try to, we're like, all right, well, this is normal, right? Because this is what we've lived in, but this is not normal. None of these things are normal. And they're distortions that continue to, to cause these impacts on the economy. And they will continue to do so, unfortunately. So- how does this compare to the 2008 crisis? 
I think that we will have a better point of comparison within the next week or two on it. Honestly, it's all too fast. And these things make a lot more sense in hindsight than they do when they actually happen. One thing I can tell you is that this is a progression of the cycle. Every time we have one of these events, the folks in charge say, this will never happen again because we've taken this and this and this step. And in reality, they always happen again because they're not actually fixing the underlying problem, which has to do with money, (laughs) which has to do with the fact that the U.S. government needs debt to be incredibly inexpensive because if it's not incredibly inexpensive, then the amount of debt that the U.S. government issues on on an annual basis uh, in order to continue to do the spending that they want to do but aren't willing to raise taxes to do, effectively, the combination of the two things just, just don't work, right? So you have to have accommodative monetary policy. And that is why, of course, inflation was it was allowed to get so bad, even in official terms, up front, was because if you didn't allow it to get bad in official terms, then it would have mean turning off the faucet that much faster and catalyzing the issues we're seeing today that much faster. But because they waited so long to turn off the faucet, that then meant that they had to raise rates at an incredible pace that we have really never seen before. People talk about how well, the pace of increase was faster in the 1980s, and that's true in absolute terms. Uh, so like, if you look at like what was the interest rate here versus what was the interest rate here, the jump between those two numbers will be larger. But if you look at it in percentage terms, at the start of last year, we were at one quarter of 1% uh, for the core interest rate, and we're now almost at 5%. So in percentage terms, we've never seen an increase like this. This is completely historically unprecedented. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's because... They're trying to play this game of causing the economy to overheat in ways that they like, but then trying to make sure that it doesn't overheat in ways that they'll be blamed for, like inflation, you know, and the beat kind of goes on with all of this stuff. The one thing that we do know about this, though, at this point is that in the short term, uh, the Fed's monetary policy hawkishness is over. This is what markets have been waiting for, actually. Uh, they cannot raise rates again in this type of an environment. They've already effectively catalyzed several collapses as a result of their haphazard moves. And now that people have acknowledged that, and now that there's panic and some concern in the economy around these things, uh, it's it's over. So we're at least, you know, this month, it, it is exceptionally unlikely. Goldman Sachs came out late last night saying, we, saying, we don't think that we're going to see more interest rate hikes this month, and maybe we're done. Uh, and, and that is indeed kind of what's true. So if that's true, then on the one hand, that means that crypto markets and risk markets are going to be really happy. It means house prices probably, you know, house prices probably kind of stay where they are, but it doesn't yeah. get worse. <laughs> um, you know, but, uh, but it's, it's, it's a wild time. And once again, it's, it just shows that the people who are in charge are just making it up as they go and they're not special and they don't know anything that we don't know. I mean, maybe they do, and that makes them even more scared than we are. But I mean, like, these are not the people who have been brought in because they make the right decisions. They're just people, and they're just making decisions. And those decisions play out just about as well as if you and I were making them. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Adam. And shifting over to traditional markets, shares in First Republic and several other U.S. regional banks plunged on Monday as investors worried that regulators had not done enough to stem deposit outflows following the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Comparing against our last markets update on Friday, in the U.S., the Dow Jones Industrial Average dropped over half of a percent, while the S&P 500 fell four-tenths of a percent. The tech-heavy Nasdaq, meanwhile, gained four-tenths of a percent. In Europe, stocks were down across the board. 
The German two-year government bond yield suffered the largest drop on record, signifying increased safe haven buying and investors trimming expectations for European Central Bank rate hikes. The regional stock 600 and London's FTSE 100 both dropped 2.4%, while Germany's DAX dropped just under 3%. Over in Asia, stocks were mixed. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index gained two-tenths of a percent, while China's Shanghai Composite Index gained 1.2%. Japan's Nikkei 225 bucked the trend and fell 1.1%. In commodities markets, Brent crude, the global benchmark for oil, fell 1.2%, trading at $80.61 per barrel. Gold, meanwhile, gained 3% over the weekend, trading at $1,914 per troy ounce. Today's traditional market coverage draws from Coindesk and MarketWatch. And that's our show for today. Thank you very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, send the show an email at podcast at coindesk.com or you can email me directly at adamlevine at coindesk.com. If you like what we're doing, we always appreciate reviews on Apple Podcasts or your preferred listening platform. This episode was produced by Adrian Blust and myself with further support from the podcast team over at coindesk.com. Have a great rest of your day and we'll be back tomorrow with another episode of Markets Daily.